Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a great episode for you all this week with our regular check-in with Israel Policy Forum's very own Chief Policy Officer, Michael Koplow, and Shira Efron, IPF's Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation Director of Policy Research. Michael, Shira, and I will be discussing the latest in Israel's escalating domestic crisis over the judicial overhaul, growing tensions in the Palestinian arena on the eve of Ramadan, and broader Middle East security and geopolitical affairs, including a surprise deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But first, a few thoughts from me. So given everything going on in Israel these days, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the details of the daily events, i.e. how many protesters came out last Saturday night, how many laws the government now intends to pass, uh, how many reservists refused to show up for reserve duty this week, etc., etc. And we'll get into all those very important details with Shira and Michael in just a minute. But I thought with the holidays approaching, it would also be useful to take a step back, assess, and look at things through a wider prism. So what have we seen in Israel under the new Netanyahu government, which is still just under three months now in power? And for those of us who follow and cover this on a daily basis, it feels like a lifetime. But what have we seen now uh, in just under three months? Well, I'd argue, to start off with, we saw Netanyahu very early on hand the reins of the Israel police to Itamar Ben-Gvir and the reins of the civilian affairs for much of the West Bank and the settlements to Betzalel Smotrich. Not a great start. We then saw the actual start of a historic and existential crisis over the judicial system in Israel and basically over the foundations of the country's democratic system with a then countervailing protest movement that has seen hundreds of thousands of Israelis on the streets now for 11 straight weeks in what is the longest and largest protest movement in Israeli history. We've also seen the new Israeli government now in open warfare against its own judicial system and courts, its own attorney general, its own police force, its own high-tech sector, its own reserve army, and on and on, this was only a partial list. We've seen terror attacks continue from the West Bank and in Jerusalem, with the deadliest start to a year between Israelis and Palestinians in probably two decades. And we've also seen a fast-approaching, obviously, constitutional crisis, which Netanyahu himself has shown no inclination of stopping amid warnings that it could all lead to real economic damage, to real institutional collapse of institutions like the IDF and the Shin Bet, and in extremis, it could lead to civil war. No more and no less, as all of you listeners of this podcast uh, know all too well. Now, all of this, all of it, has happened in less than three months, in just a matter of weeks. Now, let's go back a bit farther in time. And remember, the last month of Netanyahu's last stint as prime minister, way back in April and May of 2021, right before he was toppled by Naftali Bennett and Yari Lapid and the coalition that they managed to cobble together. So what happened back then? Well, in the last month of Bibi's previous reign, exactly almost two years ago, we saw back then far-right Jewish militias egged on and encouraged by Itamar Ben-Gvir, of all people, running around East Jerusalem, causing chaos and mayhem. We saw a heavy hand, some would say a deliberately heavy hand, by the Israel police during Ramadan in the old city of Jerusalem and in and around Damascus Gate uh, back then in 2021. We saw an Israeli government not able to press on the brakes in time before Hamas eventually fired rockets at Jerusalem, leading, as everyone likely remembers, to an 11-day war with Gaza. And during all of this, this escalation with Gaza, we also saw intercommunal riots all across Israel between Arabs and Jews. The worst such riots in at least two decades, but arguably ever. In short, in short, this has been the Netanyahu experience in Israel and for Israel for give or take the last 100 days. This is what it's been like under Netanyahu rule. And I almost forgot, and it's worth mentioning and remembering, the five force elections in less than four years that this political system went through. Only one of which, by the way, Netanyahu actually won. The last one, last November. And now we're all living, once again, with the results. Let's get to Shira and Michael. 
Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. How is everybody doing? Hi, Nair. I know that's a loaded question these days. <laughs> doing, doing okay. Hi, Nair. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. Doing okay. Uh, watching, watching things in Israel seemingly deteriorate by the day. So um, that's not so pleasant. But, yes. uh, you know, things, things in the United States are all right. So I suppose that's something. Right. And Shira? Yeah. I think uh, we don't observe the situation, you know, in Israel from, from afar. We, we live it here. And I think, you know, normally many times in Israel, right, you say like, oh, you know, personally, I'm doing really well. But, you know, Hamatzav, like the situation nationally. Um, and, and, you know, I'm lucky enough to be, to be in that situation. Personally, everything is well. But, but the separation between the personal and what's happened on the national level, and we'll maybe talk about it here on the podcast, also the regional level, it's much harder to do this, these, these days. Yeah. So. No, it's definitely, definitely true. Doing okay, trying to stay optimistic, but very, very concerned. Yeah, we'll see, uh, we'll see what the mood is at the end of the podcast. Uh, so a lot to get into today, but I wanted to start with obviously the biggest issue of the day, of all days here, uh, and that's the Netanyahu government's intention still to pass part of its judicial overhaul legislation by the Knesset's Passover recess, which is now less than two weeks away, uh, coming fast. Uh, at present, they're threatening to at least overhaul the committee that appoints judges, uh, politicizing that committee, having it be mostly beholden to the whims of the coalition government. And with good reason, I would say this compromise slash softening in quotation marks, proposal uh, was rejected by both the protest movement and the opposition. So Shira, I want to start with you. Um, lay out for us the view from Israel, if you could. Uh, your concerns since last we spoke last month about how the situation, this real crisis in Israel has evolved. Uh, what what keeps you up at night out of all the things happening here? Is it uh, the economic damage, social cohesion, the looming constitutional crisis, violence on the streets, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Can I say yes to all? Um, you can. That was yeah. that was just a, that was just a prompt. But but what? How, how do you see things? No, no, no. I got it. I got it. I think it's unbelievable. When were the elections? We're talking about four months ago, right? And then it took time for this coalition to come together. It's like we're in a different universe. It's a different country. Um, since this roller coaster started, and you know, and you 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 live here near too, and Michael falls very closely. So, I mean, um, uh, maybe we'll start just with this. Um, uh, it it looks like public pressure is uh, work working in the sense that it is uh, disruptive enough that we are hearing from uh, the government, from the coalition, specifically from Simcha Rotman and uh, Yair Levine, that they're softening uh, their uh, so-called reform, right? That they're um, not going to go for every... um, all um, legislation suggestions that they had in mind to begin with, but they're just going to insist on the very minor thing where they will have um, uh, basically the coalition will uh, 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 determine the judges will be able to select the will be able to appoint, appoint judges, not just Supreme Court appointments, but also lower uh, lowering uh, judges, and 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 I think this is uh, this is something that. Um, the, the protest movement uh, leaders of the opposition have all, as you said, have all um, uh, seen right through this, that uh, have called the, their bluff. Because in a sense, if, um, you know, one of the two functioning authorities, we spoke about it before, right? In Israel, there's really no separation of powers in the traditional way because the Knesset uh, basically does what the government uh, it's the, the, the legislative body is basically part of the executive body. So we have here two um, two authorities in practice, and if you have one uh, pointing uh, the other, you have no separation of powers. So this would undermine uh, democracy in ways that you wouldn't need the override clause and all the other things. I think what's concerning, there are two parts about this that are concerning. First of all, it's going to pass. It's just going to go through with it. Uh, which which is concerning, and we'll talk about the implications in a moment. Uh, 
The second fear, which doesn't look as likely at the moment, but it could possibly be that somehow the government would be able to spin this as a real compromise and the protest movement would decline. And sort of we would learn how to live with this um, uh, and get used to it while the, this government will be able to pass every other thing they're willing to do, they, they want to do. And they basically say they're, they're not saying that they're going to uh, really compromise. They're just slowing down. They're not going to rush through this. Um, so these are two fears in terms of the, you know, the social uh, stuff in Israel. I don't know how much you've been following, but the, you know, it gets pretty violent. We have um, uh, physicians who are being hurt, oh, being hurt. There's the physician protest, and you had a, a, a taxi driver that basically tried to uh, um, run, uh, over. Uh, run them over with the car, and then got out of the car and sprayed them with tear gas. He fell backwards, and then he was fortunate enough to be in the presence of many physicians who took care of him. But uh, the irony of that, there was we have friends with uh, kids. The youngest is 11 years old. They were the big. They went to the big protest uh, um, in Kaplan in Tel Aviv, and they were sprayed also. So the protests themselves are getting more. Um, you know, not the protests, but the counter protests and the response to the protests is getting more uh, violent. So that's one thing. Um, economically, um, the governor of uh, Israel's central bank uh, ordered all the banks to report on a buy uh, on a twice a week, right? Twice a week, all the banks have to report to the central bank of Israel about money leaving bank accounts in Israel. Mm -hmm. This is unprecedented. This is something they're tracking. Um, there's a new uh, report today from the Treasury. So this is from the government itself warning about the financial implications, how the Israeli economy is going to crash. And I'll just I'll just end up with this. You know, there's, I'm in a group of uh, academics, sort of like academics for democracy. And um, there was a survey in the group of uh, who's going to look for another place to live? Who's going to leave Israel if this uh, passes? And 73% of academics in this group, and this is this is pretty representative of most uh, rep academics in Israel, uh, said that they would look for another country. They, they would look to move out of Israel. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know if we can be more concerned than we've ever been, right? This is sort of, an, it's, and, and to, the crazy thing is this is all a crisis from within. It's before we even get to the external threats. Right. We'll get to the external threats in a minute, uh, but yes, uh, extremely concerning. We can't uh, understate or underplay uh, what's been happening here in recent weeks. Uh, and like you said, uh, I also saw this past week, especially a uh, Saturday night demonstration in Kaplan in the Israeli junction in Tel Aviv. Uh, for the first time, you had about two or three dozen counter-protesters, uh, Likud, they had a big Likud sign, and also some Ben Gvir supporters uh, actively scuffling and clashing with uh, with the protesters uh, who came out against the government. And you had some of these counter-protesters in ski masks running around. Nobody was quite sure who was who. Uh, a lot of chaos, the police kind of trying to separate in, in the middle of it all, uh, people yelling out, uh, oh, he has a knife, he has a knife. Uh, so, um, again, I don't want to alarm anybody, but you could very easily see uh, these protests and counter-protests going off the rails and getting very violent. Um, and hopefully not, but uh, but to be determined. Um, Michael, what uh, what's your perspective uh, from Washington, from the diaspora about uh, recent recent events here in Israel. So before I get to the way things are landing in Washington and the diaspora, it's important to note that the compromise that Simcha Rotman and Likud put on the table this week isn't actually a compromise. You know, as Shira noted, there's a fear about whether people will think it's a compromise, but it's designed to fool people and it's not even a particularly clever way of doing it because under the so-called softening, which is supposed to be a compromise, the government still gets to pick the first two Supreme Court justices free and clear without any check from the opposition or from the judiciary. Important to note that the average government in Israel appoints 2.6 justices per term. So <laughs> effectively, that means that the government will get to appoint all the justices. And after the first two go, you then need to get the consent of one of the judicial representatives. If you get the consent of the president of the Supreme Court, 
that'll be pretty easy because under the new formula, the president of the Supreme Court is appointed by a majority of the Judicial Appointments Committee and a majority of the committee is the coalition. So So if you want to be president of the Supreme Court going forward, as opposed to the way it works now where it's just seniority, then you're probably going to agree with the coalition when they need to get one member of the judiciary to agree with them for any subsequent picks. So this doesn't actually accomplish anything positive when we think about trying to maintain some sort of consensus over judges or trying to make sure that you know both sides maintain a veto of some sort. Um, all this does is put some window dressing on the fact that the coalition still gets to pick whatever justices it wants without any check. So if people are foolish enough to fall for this, that's on them. Uh, I think that it seems so far that the opposition parties and the protesters in the streets are perfectly intelligent folks and they understand what's going on. Yes. By the way, Michael, we we should mention um, this kind of uh, appeasement or softening or step back by the government. It seems that it was purely tactical and based on the massive amounts of pressure that the government is under. Right. right. Yariv Levine in the beginning of January came out bombastically with this massive overhaul agenda, this package of legislation, which he also bombastically said would only be the first stage and that there were subsequent <laughs> stages coming. So now they're going for, say, the the process to appoint judges and maybe one or two other things. But it's not like they're taking the rest of the package off the table. They're just uh, waiting uh, probably till after Passover. Uh, hoping that the protests kind of get tired and go away. And then after Passover, they have every intention of just picking it back up again and ramming these rest of the laws through. So again, uh, not exactly a compromise. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And also, let's remember that from the beginning, Yari Levine and Simcha Rotman have said that this is the absolute one thing that they will not compromise over. The coalition needs to be able to have a majority on the committee and to appoint whatever judges it wants. And they've consistently said that over time, even if, even as they have allowed for the possibility that maybe they will actually soften or drop some of the other elements in the reform. So anybody who's been listening to this for months where they say this is the most important part and we will not compromise on this at all, can't possibly look at this and think that all of a sudden they've compromised. They've just made it seem as if they're compromising by introducing some rhetorical trickery. But this is not any type of actual compromise. This still allows the government to appoint whomever it wants, whenever it wants. So, you know, if you think that's appropriate under the Israeli system, then fine. But if you don't, don't be fooled into thinking that this is somehow introducing a new check on on the government's power. In terms of... 100%. In terms of, um, you know, the reaction from Washington and from the American Jewish community. I think that it's pretty easy to see the alarm in Washington when you look at the fact that what's the Biden administration pressing the Israeli government over? It's largely over this, which which I think we've talked about this before on, on the podcast, but I find it intriguing <laughs> that traditionally what the U.S. is worried about is Israeli-Palestinian issues. Those are seen as things that impact U.S. interests and there's certainly an argument to be had that this is much more an Israeli domestic concern. And yet we see uh, the we see President Biden having a phone call with Prime Minister Netanyahu a couple of days ago, comparing the American readout and the Israeli readout was fun. Uh, but, you know, at least <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least from the American readout, it seems pretty clear that uh, judicial overhaul was the first and uh, primary topic. So that should and, and we've seen uh letters from members of Congress, uh, both um, a wider effort from from Democrats and a, a narrower effort from uh, Jewish members of the House. So I, I think it's pretty safe to say that in Washington, people are paying attention and seem pretty alarmed by what's taking place. Within the American Jewish community, I, I'd say it's even more so. I've spent the last few weeks Traveling around, I was in Atlanta and Miami and Palm Beach and New York, and I've uh, been doing Zooms for uh, for 
different Jewish communities all across the country. Uh, I've got one one in Los Angeles tonight. I've got one in Baltimore later in the week. I, I've been all over. Uh, both both like you're like a you're like a Jewish Johnny Cash. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm uh, I'm everywhere, man. Um, both yeah. uh, both <laughs> both in person and virtually, and it's just it, it's amazing how everybody wants to talk about the judicial overhaul. Everybody wants to understand what exactly it's about in the most intricate detail. And once I'm done explaining what the proposals are and why the government wants to see them through and, and why the opposition and the protesters in the streets do not, the next question is almost invariably, what can we as American Jews, either as institutions or as individuals, do to weigh in, express our concern, try to try to get this thing stopped? I don't remember the last time I saw so many disparate American Jewish communities and American Jewish leaders and regular American Jews in the pews feeling as if they needed to weigh in so desperately on something taking place in Israel and that uh, and that they, they desperately wanted to be heard. Again, especially since this is something that arguably doesn't doesn't impact American Jews and in, in their everyday lives or, or even in, in their direct engagement with Israel. So I'm finding the alarm over it fascinating. Almost nobody, nobody um, accepts the idea that I think um, was prevalent in the American Jewish community for such a long time that as American Jews, it's our jobs to just support whatever the Israeli government is doing and, and keep our mouths shut and, and not weigh in. Um, almost nobody accepts that anymore with regard to the judicial overhaul piece of this. And being around, I'm just, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing this transformation take place on the ground in real time. And it's fascinating to watch. Yeah. Um, outstanding work by, uh, many individuals and also organizations, uh, who have been at the forefront of, uh, of this pushback because it does cut to the, uh, to the core of, um, the type of Israel that people want to see and that people want to support, which is uh, uh, a democratic Israel uh, and a Jewish Israel, obviously. But Yeah. But maybe, Neri, I think I just want to respond to two things that Michael said. I mean, I, I agree 100%. But first of all, you know, we mentioned uh, Simcha Rotman and, uh, and Yariv Levine as um, clearly the, 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 you know, they're the determined, they are the ideological forces behind us. But, you know, they're not the prime minister. There's a whole coalition are parties we can go into what the different preferences and but the fact that they're saying it and that's what they want to do they don't have to be in the, in the job that they, they don't have to occupy the positions that they have they don't have to be in such critical roles this is not a uh you know made in a i, I mean uh, the fact that because yariv levine is justice minister it means that that israel needs to change its character is 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 crazy, right? If there is a prime minister here, and if he needs to sacrifice uh, uh, his loyal uh, comrade, or to basically make a decision that Israel is not going to go, there are some red lines that you don't cross, even if you uh, really need your coalition partners. Um, this is something that we can't. Of course, this is what they want to do, but there are some other crazies in this government which we didn't speak about yet. yet, and they also want to do other things. So yesterday, uh, you know, Bezal uh, Smotrich, uh, right, uh, uh, the the finance minister and and also a minister in the defense ministry, uh, he wants to basically go back to you know he wants to occupy Jordan. So <laughs> so what? <laughs> right. So what? Right? They have crazy ideas, and this is where it comes to where is this government who is supposed to be the responsible person? Michael, you spoke about it a lot, right? Netanyahu tried to calm everyone down and said, no, they're not going to govern. I'm going to govern. So where where is he? And where are his partners, which we are seeing uh, more and more? We're seeing some some hints that they would they oppose it, but they're too scared to say something. So they're uh, supposedly softening the legislation, even though in practice we know it's not softening of the legislation. So this is one thing um, about these the, the, these personas, and uh, if they should get such an oversized uh, role in determining the future of the state of Israel. And I'm not exaggerating. The second thing 
I will say, and I think this this goes to your conversations, Michael, with with, with the Jewish communities in different cities. This is the way I want to be a little bit optimistic. You know, we've seen a younger generation in the U.S. and in Europe that's distancing itself from from Israel. Right? It's it's difficult, difficult. The Jewish community is something that IPF uh, prioritizes through our Atid initiative, but but it's not it's not it's not easy, right? Israel um, Israel's brand, I guess, among young Jewish Americans last decade or so, even more, um, has declined. And I think that there's something, I hope that there's something in these protests that show that there are like-minded people in Israel, really with shared values, um, that could actually um, recreate those connections and uh, sympathy and solidarity and bonds uh, with across you know across across the Atlantic, but but with the younger generation. Maybe maybe I'm overly uh, optimistic, but I see some silver lining in this. Yeah, that that is that is what I also going out to the protests and talking to people who many of whom have never protested a day in their lives, uh, let alone you know against uh, settlements or for Israeli Palestinian peace. No, not at all. Uh, but they are now out on the streets. Uh, demanding a continued democratic and effectively liberal Israel. Uh, I think this political awakening, if there's one silver lining in this massive storm happening here in Israel, uh, it's it's that. It's that. That a lot of people may be coming to the realization that uh, that business as usual, the status quo, and effectively continued Netanyahu rule um, is leading Israel to very, very bad places. To add on to that, I, I think that... Uh not only what you said, but that it also transcends normal political divides. Because when you have effectively 50% of Israeli voters who voted for this coalition, not really 50%, 49.4, but let's call it 50 And upwards of two-thirds of Israelis are opposed to the government's proposed overhaul. It's optimistic as well, not just in terms of getting people more activated in politics, but that Hopefully, some of the extreme polarization can uh, can be broken. Um, but the other thing I was going to say, uh, just to add on to Shira's first point, it, it isn't even just about Netanyahu now and his claims about having his hand on the steering wheel and he's the prime minister. He should be able to control the government. He's responsible for putting. I don't even. Th- I don't. I don't even think he's in the driving seat. No, okay, I don't think so either. <laughs> um, but it, it's not just that he looks powerless now. You know, in terms of his willingness to stand up to Yariv Lavin or, or Simcha Radman, he put them in those positions. You know, Yariv Lavin turned down being justice minister in the past because he was only willing to do it if he could push through whatever he wanted. And this time, Netanyahu gave him the job, which means that he told him he could push through whatever he wanted. So it isn't even just about things being out of control now. Netanyahu is the one who, with very open eyes, knew that things were going to get out of control. So at every stage of this, it's not, yeah, I, I, I've been doing this too. You know, I talk about Yariv Lavin and Simcha Rotman and obviously Batalo Smotrich, but Netanyahu knew what was going to happen. He put the most extreme people matched up to almost every single possible cabinet position. Um, and, and he ran with it, which is how we have Smotrich as a minister in the defense ministry and Ben Gvir overseeing national security and Yariv Lavin in the justice ministry and Simcha Rotman as the person shepherding this through the Knesset. Um, it's completely on Netanyahu's head. Yeah. Um, and in terms of kind of analyzing Netanyahu, it's a really difficult game to play these days. Uh, I know that journalists who have been covering Netanyahu for a lot longer than I have, and even former aides to Netanyahu just cannot understand uh, what is happening with his decision-making recently. Uh, they can't understand how he's effectively destroying the country that he's led for the better part of two decades plus. Um, and so it's it's quite frightening to see uh, what, what people deem to be a, a statesman on the world stage uh, at a very high level, uh, now essentially taking orders from uh, various ministers and also perhaps members of his own family. Um, and, and also I should, I should mention uh, in terms of Netanyahu's actual decision-making, I don't think he probably anticipated this level of pushback, right? When he, when he formed this government and when he allowed Levine to 
float uh, this judicial destruction package and legislation. I think he probably imagined, yeah, there'll be some some demonstrations, maybe some uh, some critiques from various foreign capitals, but he'll weather the storm like he's weathered countless storms in the past. Uh, what we're seeing now on the ground in Israel and internationally, I think, is a order of magnitude greater than what he anticipated. Um, and yet he hasn't backed down yet. He hasn't backed down yet, uh, despite, uh, well, criticism and opposition from every corner, literally, in Israel and, and abroad. Um, so I, my only sense, and I get, to, like you, I get asked this question a lot, you know, what is Bibi thinking? My only sense is that he figures he'll push through one or two of these laws uh, by Passover. Uh, the protesters will maybe demonstrate through the holiday, uh, but basically Netanyahu's daring them to go to war quote-unquote war, or maybe not quote-unquote war, maybe effective war, uh, over the process to appoint judges, uh, daring them to essentially stay on the streets for weeks and months at a time, and daring the Biden administration and other foreign governments to actually exact a cost uh, for what, you know, effectively is a domestic Israeli issue. Um, I think that's maybe, in terms of the, the logic and the rationale motivating him today, I think he's probably saying, okay, we can push this through and we'll see what happens. Um, very dangerous game. We'll be right back after this brief message. Are you trying to keep up with the Israeli government's ongoing judicial overhaul? Check out our new judicial legislation tracker, which tracks the progress of each proposed bill, as well as other judicial resources, including translated videos and statements. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of two states, read our timely written explainers unpacking critical issues, explore our 50 Steps Before the Deal policy resource, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. Links to all of these resources can be found in the description of this podcast. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at israelpolicyforum.org support. Okay, with all that, uh, on to the next issue, which in normal days might be the main issue. Uh, but that's the Palestinian uh, issue and continued violence uh, in the West Bank. Uh, especially with Ramadan starting tomorrow. Uh, and we probably should have mentioned this at the top. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, but again, these aren't normal times. And so uh, the Palestinian issue and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, takes a backseat to domestic Israeli politics. Uh, for our listeners, by way of context, we should mention that there was another diplomatic summit held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, earlier this week. Uh, the second such summit uh, in recent weeks after the Aqaba summit in Jordan. Uh, we had Israeli, Palestinian, American, Egyptian, and Jordanian officials all sitting together and trying to find agreement and uh, maybe a mechanism to de-escalate tensions and violence. So, Shira, let's start with you. What did we make of the Sharm summit, this recent diplomatic summit? Uh, again, a lot of lofty goals and statements came out of it. But at least from the Israeli side, it seems that uh, the Netanyahu government is uh, speaking out of both sides of its mouth. Uh, and that's even before we get into the Palestinian side of this equation in terms of whether the PA, the Palestinian Authority, has uh, the actual capability or the actual will to uh, regain security control over pockets of trouble in the northern West Bank, like Nablus and Janine. So, Shira, what did you make of uh, this latest Sharm summit? I mean, I think you summed it up well. We have those lofty statements, right? I think okay. the main achievement of the summit is that it happened. Uh, it means that all sides see a point in continuing, uh, continuing talking, continuing trying, whether for cynical reasons, uh, whether the PA does it only because the Egyptians, the Jordanians ask them, whether Israel does it just to, sh to demonstrate the United States you know, there's still sanity that cooler heads still prevail somewhere here in this government. Uh, but the fact is all these representatives were in the in the summit. There were discussions. Um, I understand that U.S. officials did a really good job of, you know, shuttling between between rooms and trying to get to to achievements. They're not big. 
um, as we said, but at least we're not giving up. All sides, the sides are not giving up and trying to calm things down. Um, there's a lot of focus um, on, you know, Ramadan and then leading up to Yom Yerushalayim and this tense uh, time of the year. I got to say, and I mean, I think also at IPF, we spoke about it, we warned about it. I think the Israelis are hyping it up, um, you know, how tense this period is. Frankly, in normal times, in previous years, when the situation in the West Bank was relatively quiet, so, you know, Ramadan was sort of, could always be the the, the bad surprise, uh, that made sense. When we are at levels of violence, as we are seeing today, the first three months of um, 2023, uh, with, with escalating violence in the West Bank after 2022, which is it was an extremely violent year also, think we shouldn't even talk about, you know, mostly in Ramadan days. I mean, unless everything explodes, which I frankly, I, I mean, I don't want to make predictions, but I'm not sure is likely. Uh, we are in a slippery slope um, of uh, a variety of threats, right? And issues and violence, the tactical, you know, on the tactical level, we have we have terrorism, something that, that can be contained. And if there's no violence in, in Ramadan, I'm I'm afraid that everyone's gonna say, like, okay, we calm things down now. We the issue is not on the uh, on, we can put it back on the on the back burner, right? Uh, this is what we're trying to avert. And 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 the problems are much more um fundamental than 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 this wave of terrorism, right? In a sense it's 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 a symptom, it's a terrible one. It's it's People lose their lives, Israelis, uh, Palestinians. Um, but, but, but it's not just that. You know, something that we don't talk about is that um, civil servants and this part of the reform that the PA really needs to go through, right? There are 140,000 civil servants, bloated government, um, who are not receiving their full salaries for many, many months, maybe a year now. Um, the Prime Minister Shtaye, um, uh made an agreement with them that after receiving uh, only 70% of their wages and that the income is not very high to begin with, uh, they will go back to 100% plus uh, retroactively compensation for all the, 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 all the, the lost income. Um, and of course, the PA has no budget, they can't uh, pay this. So what we have is for over a month now, we have the teachers are on strike. So you have, uh, I th- I, the numbers are hundreds of thousands of youth who are not going to school for over a month now. You have people unemployed. You have bored, bored, you know, Palestinians, young Palestinians on the streets with no hope for a better future, not economically, not security wise. And definitely in what we're seeing, and this has both two sides to it, it has the side of their, I'm sorry to say, the, the failed PA, which is, which is really a government that fails to provide services for its people. Um, on one hand, and you have uh, Israeli policies that are um, uh, demonstrating day and night, um, you know, in, in every uh, shape. We always thought it's like, okay, we're in a two-state uh, two-state paradigm. It's not going so well. We're gonna not going to happen now. But but you have an Israeli government that is pursuing policies um, that that basically say that there will never be a Palestinian state. And these are the real, real issues. And these are the issues that are, were not dealt with um, uh, in the summit and that are very complicated to deal with under the current circumstances. So um, I think it's important they keep talking. I think we all know what we need to do. I think we can start with the, with, with small, tangible steps, uh, which, which, which kind of like all, all sides uh, even this Israeli government can, can you know, sort of swallow and, and digest in the Venn diagram of what the what the, the, the PA would be willing to accept and what this Israeli government would be willing to accept and what the international community would be willing to uh, put effort into. We can find some things to do. Uh, IPF, we have a we have a 50 steps list on this, um, but but we're not there. Um, all we're talking about now is de-escalation, containing the violence. It's it's an important, it's a worthy goal, but it can't uh, it can be pursued um, without the larger context. Um, and this is what I would have loved to see, and, and I'm afraid we're not seeing. And we also saw last night the Knesset pass uh, a law 
repealing or revoking or reversing uh, the 2005 disengagement from the Northern West Bank, where a handful of Israeli settlements were actually taken down as part of the overall disengagement from the Gaza Strip. So uh, this Israeli government and this Israeli Knesset uh, reversed that law, uh, basically paving the way for a lot of those settlements in the Northern West Bank to be rebuilt and repopulated. So obviously uh, running counter to I guess the the agreements and spirit of Sharm el Sheikh, and writ large the spirits and agreements of uh, previous rounds of Israeli Palestinian peacemaking. Uh, Michael, what did you think of the Sharm summit, and how concerned are you about uh, the upcoming month with Ramadan and Passover and Easter all overlapping, especially in Jerusalem? Neri, what you noted about the repeal of the disengagement law yesterday is a great bridge to the the point that I was going to make because. So we saw last time after the Aqaba summit, there are all sorts of, you know, there's there's this nice joint communique. And then literally the same day, you have Netanyahu come out and say, well, you know, the things that we promised to do, we didn't actually promise to do with regard to settlements. You know, and then Safi Hanegbi, who was actually at the summit, came out and, and said the same thing. We, we haven't promised <laughs> to, to, to freeze or stop anything. Again, in Sharm el-Sheikh, same thing, right? We we had we had uh, this communique and, and reporting that Israel was going to freeze new new announcements for four months and uh, and freeze uh, any anything on retroactively legalizing outposts for six months, or maybe I have it the other way around. There was you know one was four months, one one was six months, and then like clockwork, the Knesset goes and repeals the disengagement law, which. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure how that can't be interpreted as retroactively legalizing stuff that was illegal yesterday. So, you know, the, these uh, the, these very nice statements last lasts on paper for it seems like a day, and it just mm-hmm. it makes me think that these two summits, and this is not in any way uh, a criticism of the U.S. I think the U.S. government and the Egyptians and the Jordanians are trying really hard here and they don't have a lot of options. But it seems to me that in many ways, these are just diplomatic security theater where the Israeli government shows up and knows that it has to come and make some vague promises. And then uh, the other the other hand of the Israeli government just does whatever it wants. <laughs> um, you know, the... The, 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 the ministers and the politicians are ignoring whatever Tzafi Hanegbi and Ronan Bar agree to. They'll, they'll just do whatever they want. And, and that's how it is. Um, and it's just, it's very disheartening to see. And uh, if I were a U.S. government official, I'd, I'd be angry, right? There's so much time and effort and preparation spent on these things. And it's pretty clear that the actual decision makers in the Israeli government, not the professionals and not the security folks, but the elected decision makers don't care even one whit what was promised in Sharma Sheikh or in Aqaba. Um, and when it comes to Ramadan, to Shira's point about uh, how bad things are in the West Bank, I worry that everybody is too focused on Jerusalem, which makes sense given what we've seen in the past and makes sense given the role of the Temple Mount and Al-Aqsa. But everybody's trying to figure out how to de-escalate there and make sure that the Israeli government doesn't make some of the same mistakes that it made over the past couple of years and make sure that the waqf is empowered and make sure that, that everybody is laser focused on Jerusalem. But I do worry that uh, this year Ramadan is going to be felt most acutely in the West Bank. And, you know, we're seeing uh, again more, more attacks in Hawara um, on both sides and another shooting attack uh, over, I think it was yesterday or maybe it was on Sunday. Uh, on Sunday, another shooting attack on an Israeli driving through Hawara. Um, more attempted reprisals by Israelis throwing throwing stones and, and other objects. And um, this this is and, and then you bring in the the repeal of the disengagement law, um, which by the way applies to the northern West Bank, which is as we've seen uh, the most volatile section of the West Bank. And I, I just I, I worry that while everybody is watching Jerusalem, it's actually the West Bank during Ramadan that's going to spiral out of control. Right, right. And uh, just for our listeners, uh, Tzachia Negbi is the Israeli national security advisor, a longtime Likud uh, politician and minister. Ronan Barr is the head of the Israeli Shin Bet, the internal security service. 
And Hawara is uh, obviously the Palestinian village in the northern West Bank, uh, right outside Nablus, uh, that has been the scene of um, at least two terror attacks against Israelis and uh, the pogrom uh, rampaging Israeli extremist settlers uh, running through that Palestinian village, uh, setting fire to homes. So that is Hawara. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a huge concern. Uh, by the way, I think there has been reporting in recent days that the Israeli police and the Jerusalem municipality is actually going to take a, shall we say, softer approach towards uh, this upcoming Ramadan period than uh, the Likud government of 2021 did, uh, which uh, led to all kinds of clashes in East Jerusalem and the Old City and uh, uh, eventually rockets on Jerusalem and an 11-day war in Gaza. So uh, so hopefully that is that is correct, and the Jerusalem police has, has learned its lessons from Ramadan in 2021, uh, and that uh, uh, Muslim worshippers and Palestinians in Jerusalem are allowed to celebrate the holiday appropriately. Um, final issue, final topic for today, uh, regional security affairs. Um, I wanted to get your opinions on the recent Iran-Saudi if not a peace deal, uh, which it isn't, then a rapprochement or a resumption of ties uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, brokered under the auspices of China, actually, uh, last week. There was a big uproar in Israel over this development uh, with Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid blaming Netanyahu for, quote-unquote, losing Saudi Arabia, and Netanyahu uh, firing back and blaming Bennett and Lapid for causing all of this to happen on their watch. Uh, even though it happened on his watch, uh, just objectively, that's how time works. Uh, and my own opinion, uh, and Israelis may be uh, shocked to hear this, uh, and this also happens to be bad for my own business, but Israel, uh, as it turns out, is not the center of the universe. Uh, yes, it might be shocking for Israelis to hear that. Um, I think there were good reasons for both Saudi and Iran to reduce tensions, uh, irrespective of Israel. Uh, and if anything, from my point of view, uh, this had more to do with maybe U.S. policy in the Middle East uh, and how traditional Arab partners in the region are hedging more and more uh, because they see the U.S. maybe disengaging more and more uh, from the Middle East. So, Shira, let's start with you. What did you make of this Iran-Saudi deal? Um, is it more about the U.S.? Is it more about uh, kind of localized regional developments? Is it about Israel? Am I completely wrong? What do you think? Um, no, you're you're definitely n- not wrong. I think um, Israel um, is really, I don't even know if it has marginal importance in this issue. It's really not about Israel. Um, so first of all, it was reported in Israel there was a huge surprise around it. Although all of us that have been following have been seeing the Saudis and the and the Iranians in in, in dialogue and conversations about restoring ties for two mm-hmm. years now. Um, you know, in Oman, uh, through the Baghdad conference. It's also, it's not the big Saudi and the UAE following, right? The United Arab Emirates uh, started this process um, earlier um, and and with Saudi, it was just it was just a matter of time, and this has to do with uh, with uh, regional uh, dynamics. We it's not that the Saudis um, uh, have their threat assessment of Iran has changed, right? They still uh, share uh, lots of concerns with Israel, but geography plays a difference. Those countries are closer to Iran. They're more vulnerable to Iran's uh, malign uh, regional influence. Uh, they're more uh, vulnerable to the proxies. There are populations, right, of those countries. There's money involved. You know, um, uh, Saudi and Iran had diplomatic ties until uh you know, in 2016, and 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 now it's basically restoring them. So this is not um, what what's being uh, portrayed in in Israel. Um, China's, uh, you know, sort of being the the the, the uh, being crowned as the new uh, peacemaker in the region is very smart on the part of China. But really, it came to cut the ribbon ribbon in the end and doing it. Uh, with China as the facilitator is probably a blow to the U.S., right? But it's not that this is China orchestrated dip- diplomacy that that achieved uh, this breakthrough. It's really some things that have happened, have been building for for a long time, and and frankly, um, you know, 
it's not necessarily a terrible thing, right? There are other things in this region. There's there's still a war in Yemen. There's still tensions in the Gulf. Um, we're not sure. The jury's still out. We'll have to see how this is implemented and how long this agreement survives because the tensions, the underlying problems between Iran and Saudi are still there. Um, but but if this can calm things down and lead to de-escalation in the region, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, in Israel, this was portrayed, and as you said, and the, it's so foolish on the part of, of the Israeli politicians to think that this has to do with Israel and Israel normalization or no normalization. First of all, I don't think normalization with the Saudis is coming anyway, regardless of Correct. this agreement. It's because of that, and we can talk about it. Uh, but also, it, this is not how, the, you know, this either or um, that we like to talk about. Look at Saudi Arabia. Look at Saudi Arabia uh, strategic ties with the U.S. and uh, strengthening ties with China. They don't pick sides. They can do both. So it's not either or. And they can have joint interests with them and joint interests with others. Um, but but then the bigger thing, I think that countries getting along in the region is not a bad thing. And if it has to do with uh, the, the U.S. Um, uh, redu- I wouldn't say withdrawing from the region, but maybe reducing its physical uh, 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 footprint in the region, which would be a little bit more accurate, um, we can argue that normalization between Israel and Arab countries is also the product of that. So if, if you know, sort of the... the, the um, uh, Unintended consequence, but a very positive one of the, the U.S. reducing its footprint is that countries in this region are learning to get along. No, I don't. I don't see this as a bad development. Really good points, uh, Michael. What was the view from Washington about uh, the Iran-Saudi deal? It looks embarrassing for the U.S. given that it was China who did this, and obviously, in many ways, it looks embarrassing for for Netanyahu. Hence the bickering back and forth about. Who lost? Who lost Saudi Arabia? And it's Netanyahu or or Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. But uh, to echo Shira, nobody lost Saudi Arabia. Um, I don't. I don't actually. Uh, I don't. I don't blame Netanyahu for this. I don't blame Bennett or Lapid for this. There's a gap between Israel and the Gulf countries on Iran. That's not new. There always has been. There's this fiction out there that somehow normalization was driven by the fact that everybody in the region has the exact same attitude toward Iran and, and the same view on how to counter it. And that's simply not true. And all you need for proof on that is that as the Abraham Accords happened and as the relationship between Israel and the UAE got tighter, the UAE was at the exact same time establishing better relations with Iran. Uh, and so here too, you know, we see this, mm-hmm. we see this with the Saudis and Countries in the region, they, the Sunni countries in the region want the Iranians to just leave them alone. They don't view Iran as an existential threat to them the same way that Israel does. And the best way to get Iran to leave them alone is to have better relations with it. In, in many ways, this is just, this is kind of classic international relations theory. Countries that, that are close to Russia think that Russia wants to actually take them over, which is why they join with the United States and, and NATO and, and balance against Russia. The countries in the region don't think that Iran wants to actually invade them and take over their countries. And so it makes sense to not treat Iran the way that Israel does from their perspective as this implacably hostile power. It makes sense for them to do what they can to just get the Iranians off their backs and and get some more quiet in the region. And so, um, you know, what Shira said about Countries not thinking they have to choose. That is correct. Countries don't think they have to choose. And in many ways, the uh, the Cold War, or maybe it's not even such a Cold War, between Israel and Iran in the region is between Israel and Iran, but the other countries in the region don't see it that way. And so I think uh, I, I think in many ways, this, this makes sense um, through that framework. And it doesn't preclude eventual Israel-Saudi normalization. The same way that the UAE trying to improve its relations with Iran didn't preclude Israeli-Emirati normalization. Saudi normalization wasn't happening tomorrow anyway, as you know, as certainly the three of us know. Um, I was about to say as everyone knows, but I'm not sure everyone knows. Um, so, you know, will it, will it still happen? If, if, if I had to place a bet, if Israel-Saudi normalization is still going to happen within five to eight years, I would I would place that bet. And... Um, what happened between the Saudis and the Iranians doesn't change that. And 
Um, and again, we'll have to actually see how it holds because we've also seen multiple efforts between the Iranians and the Saudis to de-escalate, to come to some sort of agreements, and they've fallen apart. Um, similar to the way we've seen constant, constant efforts between uh, Fatah and Hamas to reconcile and those also always fall apart. So um, I, I think everybody, I think everybody can take yes. a can take a wait and see attitude here, and, and let's see what actually happens. But again, even even if this works out as the two countries intend and they restore ambassadors and they have a much better relationship and the Yemeni civil war ends and there are no many no no more Iranian cruise missile and drone strikes on Aramco facilities, that doesn't mean that Israel and Saudi Arabia can't normalize down the road. Um, so I think that everybody's got to take this in perspective. Uh, yes, that's good advice. That's very good advice. Um, final question, final topic. Uh, I wanted to kind of bring it full circle and bring in the domestic unrest in Israel and also tie it into regional security and geopolitical affairs. Um, we saw last week a very weird, I don't think there's any other word for it, a very weird cross-border incursion from uh, Lebanon uh, into Israel. A uh, heavily armed militant was able to get all the way to the center of the country and plant a uh, roadside bomb. Uh, injuring one Arab-Israeli uh, motorist very randomly. Um, there was also the issue of the UAE uh, making it very clear that it uh, did not like various actions and statements uh, by various members of this Israeli government, uh, hint, hint, Betzalel Smotrich and uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir. Uh, and there's also the issue of Iran enriching uranium very close to weapons grade, uh, to name just a few issues that are swirling around the region these days. Uh, normally, these issues would be, I think, top of the agenda, uh, but taking a backseat, uh, obviously, to the domestic unrest. So my question, let's start with Michael this time. Do you think there is a connection between these various developments regionally and the domestic unrest in Israel? Uh, in other words, do you think people definitely in the Middle East are looking at Israel right now and saying, okay, this might be a good time to, to perhaps test Israel militarily, uh, or looking at Israel and saying, well, this isn't the type of Israeli government we want to be doing business with, so we're taking a step back. What do you, do you think there's a clear connection or am I uh, maybe uh, reading too much into maybe disparate developments? I think there must be an element of that to what's going on. The, the Iranians have obviously been enriching for years, so that's not a new element. And, you know, we've seen Hezbollah efforts to infiltrate uh, in from Lebanon also. That's not um, that's not new. But I think any enemy is going to constantly be probing for, for signs of weakness. And uh, the fact that you had an armed Hezbollah terrorist who, you know, reportedly, once they found him and, and shot him, he was also wearing a suicide vest and had all sorts of uh, all sorts of ammunition uh, in, in his car. The fact that he was able to get so far into Israel undetected and, and plant a bomb and, and get away, at least for a little bit of time, uh, that should be very scary, especially considering how often we've heard from Israeli security folks that their number one worry about Hezbollah is that they want to they want to infiltrate and, and cause an incident in, in the Galil and, uh, and claim that as some, as some sort of big victory that they can they can hit the Israelis in their backyard. So I would definitely be worried about this. And a hundred percent. I think it's logical to assume that countries in the region are looking at the chaos inside of Israel, and particularly the hostile ones, thinking that maybe this is the time to try something out because the Israeli government is distracted. But I'd actually focus on it more from the other side of it. There's no way that the Israeli security establishment, whether countries or whether Iran and Hezbollah are, are testing it or not, there's no way that the Israeli security establishment can possibly be expected to keep their eye on the ball and be laser focused on threats when there is all this chaos taking place inside of Israel in terms of the political decision-making, in terms of reservists not showing up, in terms of threats from career army officers to, to leave if this stuff goes through, in terms of the demonstrations in the streets, in terms of the fear about what happens if all this goes through and the IDF chief of staff has an order from the defense minister and has a different order from the Supreme Court and, and what happens? There's no possible way that, that any, any military and security establishment, no matter how professional and how well trained, can be expected to deal with everything it has to deal with and not be distracted by everything taking place inside of Israel. So 
whether the Iranians are choosing this particular time to test Israel or not, whether Hezbollah is choosing this particular time to try to send people across the border or not, I, I think the real focus should be on what this does to IDF preparedness, no matter what else is going on around Israel. And uh, again, it, it would it would be complete insanity to think or claim that this isn't impacting Israel's security. It's not only security decision-making, but security preparedness in a real way. Yeah, uh, very well put. Um, and we just have to look at how much time the IDF chief of staff, Helzi Alevi, has spent in the past two or three weeks meeting with reservists and trying to uh, cajole them uh, either to return to service or to not go through and follow through on their threats to not report for duty due to the uh, judicial overhaul plans of the government. Just the sheer amount of time he has spent on that issue, uh, to say nothing of the commander of the Air Force and on down the line. Shira, last word goes to you. What do you think? Last word. Um, so, you know, um, <laughs> former chief of staff, now a Knesset member, Gadi Eisenkot, uh, said yesterday that we are in the uh, worst, the most precarious uh, security situation uh, uh, of the last five decades. Um, this is not a coincidence that it's happening uh, now. Uh, it's true that Iran has been enriching uranium uh, uh, um, and getting to this, becoming a, a practically a nuclear threshold state uh, now or before, that may not have to do with it, but um, they're emboldened. And the situation in Israel domestically uh, uh, does not help. Uh, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, Hezbollah chief, uh, said that Israel is not going to see its 80th year. He has a theory that Israel is breaking from within. Um it is true that we don't know if this, you know, weird uh, incident has to do specifically with with the situation at the moment. But there's no question, and all um, uh, all uh, strategic warnings uh, say that Israel's adversaries are emboldened and feel that Israel is weak. It does not mean that you know they will that it, it creates a, a, an environment with more risks for testing Israel it does not mean that Israel will not respond uh, and that Israel is really weaker, but, but, but it does raise the stakes. Um, is also on the regional uh, level. You mentioned also, you know, there's a, we have a, a, the day we're recording this, uh, the 21st of March, there's a delegation from the UAE visiting the president, a meeting with the president, and they're going to come with, with, with a message. Uh, they're going to protest over uh, what uh, uh, Bitsal Smotrich minister uh, said in Paris, that there's no such thing as the Palestinian people, and uh, <laughs> showing a map of Israel being great. It's the kingdom of also the other side of basically taking over a Jordan as well. But even before Smotrich's statement, and even before Ben Gvir plans to do whatever he plans to do next, um, we, there was supposed to be, last week I was in Abu Dhabi, there was supposed to be an event uh, promoting the Abraham Accords. It was canceled. The ministerial level meeting of the NEGA forum scheduled later for Morocco is now postponed until further notice. We are hearing reports that um, countries that normalize with Israel are disappointment. We need to remember that uh, notwithstanding what Israel has to offer in terms of innovation capabilities and, and you know, on the defense and, and the civilian realms, um, part of Israel's value was that it seemed like a gateway to Washington. <laughs> when the minister of Israel uh, is not being invited to Washington, and it's, he's actively not receiving an invite to go to Washington. I mean, Israel is losing its, 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 its value. Um, and, and, and I think going, um, maybe continuing the line of thought that what Michael said, you know, you, Michael, you were talking about the professional defense, uh, uh, defense folks at the IDF. And, and really we are, we are, we are witnessing something we've never seen before with, 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 uh, threats of, uh, not showing up to reserve duty, not volunteering, right? It's volunteer service uh, being materialized. This is the first week we're seeing uh, those uh, being materialized. Um, but it's not that you would think that each one of these threats, right? Iran with uh, enrichment at the level of 84% reportedly only 12 days, uh, uh, within 12 days can, can 
to the 90%, which was military grade, uh, Hezbollah emboldened, uh, the Palestinian front we, we spoke about, um, in, in losing support in the U.S., and in Europe, and uh, maybe the opportunity cost of losing, you know, the, the potential for normalization and, and, and the benefits of deepening normalization with, with existing one. All of these challenges, each one, not all of them, each one of these challenges merit uh, the full attention of a competent, experienced, and laser-focused uh, national security cabinet. Okay, this is the politicians. And if you look at the cabinet now at the moment, not all of them, but it includes ministers with zero national security experience, zero military experience, which is maybe not needed, but also they don't even care about those national security issues, right? Their attention is focused instead domestically on undermining the independence of the courts and building the infrastructure for exonerating corrupt politicians like Arya Derry and making sure that Netanyahu can keep getting gifts. And under circumstances i think we um we we're i'm concerned as you two are that uh, security threats will become more imminent with the risk that what happens in israel will not stay in israel meaning sorry i have to follow up meaning what that it could escalate into the wider region escalate to violence. There's, yes, it could be, you know, we're talking about the West Bank, which I don't consider as part of Israel. Uh, we're talking about uh, a, a serious provocation by Hezbollah will be answered. Who knows what's planned with Iran? Um, right. We are in a dangerous, we're in a dangerous place. Right. Um, we're over time, so we'll have to stop there. And again, to bring it all the way back to the top, uh, there is one man and one man only who can stop all of this and return some semblance of sanity to uh, to this country, and that's uh, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. So, yeah. Although maybe the genie is out of the bottle, and you know, and, and that may that may not happen. Good question. Yeah, that may not happen. Uh, with that, uh, we have to wait and see. Uh, Michael Shira, thank you as always for the time and the insights and uh, to everyone listening uh if we don't uh well you you will hear from us uh closer to the holidays but we'll use this opportunity to wish everybody listening a happy and peaceful especially peaceful uh passover ramadan and easter period um so michael shira that goes for you as well thanks nary thanks shira thank you nary thank you michael okay thanks again to michael Koplow and shira efron as always also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening.